Now let's turn to Daniel chapter 2, verse 24 to 49. The passage for today is Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 to 49. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, the mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of its image uh, was, of, was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of their summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was a dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, we shall rule all uh, over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. 
nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to, homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and we are continuing our series this morning in the book of Daniel. It's a book that teaches God's people how do we live as people of faith among people who don't necessarily share our faith? And up to now, the focus of the book has zeroed in on what it's like for God's people as individuals, for God's people to live in one particular nation that is built on a different worldview from their own, a worldview that has different values, that has different lifestyle from the ones that they are used to. And we've seen how that unbelieving world brings pressure on God's people how it tries to replace their worldview with its own, how it offers them rewards to do so, how it tries to get them to adjust their faith and to adopt its values and way of life instead. But we've also seen that God's people are not living there by accident, that God has put them there very intentionally, that he has plans to make himself known through them to the rest of the people, and that he gives his people what they need in order to do the job that he gives them. And so we've seen God's people resist the pressures of their society and yet be successful in that society, all while remaining faithful to God and to his agenda. Now we come to a place in the book where the camera pulls back in, in, away from that more focused view on individual persons interacting with their own society. It zooms out. It gives us a wide-angle, broader, more historical view, not of just one nation, but of the nations as a whole, and not of just a couple of God's people, but of God's people as a whole extending throughout history. If you want to think about it this way, you could think about it as it's offering us a philosophy of history, a philosophy of human history, a philosophy of the nature of the kingdoms of this earth and the nature of God's kingdom as God comes and interacts with these other nations. It's a philosophy, a way of making sense of what's going on in the world that is so important that you have in your head, so, so important that you have it as part of your mental grid, that God is not going to risk you misunderstanding it. You have to be able to have it as part of the way that you think so quickly that you can use it at a moment's notice. And so God does not give you this philosophy in a dense treatise that is just packed with jargon-laden vocabulary. Instead, he gives you this philosophy in a picture, in a dream picture, 
Simple picture that any child could understand, and he does that because all of God's people need to understand this way of thinking, regardless of how old they are, regardless of their mental ability. And so from the youngest to the oldest this morning, we all have to get this today so that we can understand how to think about the larger world around us. So we're going to take a look today at this dream, at this picture, to learn three things. First, we want to see how does God see history? What does human history look like from his point of view? Secondly, why do we need to see what he sees? And then third, how do we live now that we see what he sees? How does God see history? Why do we need to see what he sees? And how do we live based on seeing what he sees? So first, what does God see when he takes the long view of history? And bluntly put, he sees human history devolve over time. He sees it spiraling down. He sees kingdoms rise and fall, none of them lasting, none of them having any real staying power. The ones that are coming afterward are not necessarily better than the ones they replace. They tend to be worse. They tend to be inferior. And he has this view of human history that goes from high to low. So God starts by saying Babylon is great. Daniel interprets what the head of gold means. He turns to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 37, and as he talks, it, it almost starts to sound like a return to the Garden of Eden. He says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and think, oh my goodness, that, that, that's heavenly kind of language that's being ascribed to this earthly kingdom. You have the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Babylon is the starting point. It has power, it has might, it has glory. Nebuchadnezzar rules not only over the children of man, wherever they dwell, which is a way of saying over the whole known world, but he rules over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. They also are under his jurisdiction. If you think about it, this sounds very familiar. It sounds like Genesis 1. This sounds like the creation mandate that God gave to Adam. It tells us there that, that, that humanity was to rule over the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Daniel stops just short of saying that God has made Nebuchadnezzar a second Adam. This nation is really amazing. But then he says, this nation will not last. It will fall and it will be replaced. And the nation that replaces it will not have the same glory. We're not told in what way it won't have the same glory. But this next nation will be silver compared to Babylon's gold. And the one that comes after will be even less glorious, and so on. And so we're moving from silver to bronze, from bronze to iron, and then to a mix of iron and clay. Each kingdom clearly less glorious, each one less grand, each one with less splendor than the one before it. But as the metals representing the nations become less valuable, they also become harder. And when you get to the fourth kingdom, you realize that that hardness is not a good thing. Because the fourth kingdom does not rule in a way that benefits others. It hurts them. This is a kingdom, verse 40, strong as iron. Because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. 
And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. It's not a good kingdom compared to the others. It takes the strength that it has and it misuses that strength. Now you need to keep in mind here that Babylon was no picnic really, especially if you were one of God's people. It conquered Jerusalem, chapter 1. It deported its people and attempted to force them to reject their faith and become Babylonians. It was not a nice kingdom. It was also no stranger to brutality. We saw last week in chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar threatens to dismember the wise men if they can't figure out how to do something that's utterly impossible. Chapter 3, he has a furnace on site, we learn, that he throws people into. Chapter 6, we discovered that nearby the king's palace is a pit full of lions that they also throw people to. I guess that's when the furnace isn't working. This is not a nice nation. It's not what we would call civilized. Clearly, however, from God's perspective, the fourth nation is even worse. So here's God's perspective. When he looks down on earth from heaven, when he considers the history of the world, he sees a steady descent of humanity as violent kingdoms are replaced by inferior and even more violent kingdoms. And that continues until his kingdom breaks in and starts to shatter their power. This is not a rousing endorsement for the goodness of humanity, for the way that we use our power. But frankly, it's a way of seeing history for which there is a fair amount of evidence. In our world, there is a steady rotation of nations onto and then off of the center of the world stage. Each one that moves to the center of the stage seems powerful, it seems enduring, even promising. But over time, none of them can sustain their power. There's always another nation on the rise, always one that's trying to take over the power that others have, trying to replace them, and each one that is on center stage has something inside of it that starts to erode its own power. It develops significant problems over the course of its lifetime, problems that undermine it. And most everyone sees that, even if they have different solutions for what they see. So people with a more traditionalist bent will look at the problems and they'll say, you know what, we need to look to the past. They look back and they say, remember the good old days? The golden head days? The days when people were more responsible, they were more moral, they were more relationally committed to each other. Those were the golden days, we just need to go back to the way things were. To which people of a more progressive bent say, are you kidding? It's because of the way things were that we're in such a mess now. The way things were is what's produced all of our societal ills. It's produced poverty, income, inequality, racism, injustice. This society is a mess. The way to fix it is not back, it's forward. Now listen carefully and you hear them both saying something. They're both saying this society is not good. They can both see that. Whatever promise it might have had, it's fallen apart over time. And the longer that things remain as they are, the worse they get. We need a change of direction. We need it now. The solutions that they offer go in opposite directions, but they both agree that if we just did, according to them, the right thing, if we just went the direction that they're laying out for us, then the world would steadily improve instead of steadily erode. And God disagrees. He rejects both of those approaches. 
And instead, his kingdom introduces a third way. This stone, verse 34, is cut out, but by no human hand. It has no reliance on our humanity, no reliance on human power, no reliance on human philosophy or traditions. This stone, cut out by no human hand, strikes the statue, breaks it into pieces. Pieces that are so small the wind comes along and just blows them away. God's kingdom replaces the other kingdoms. It does not develop from them. It does not owe its power to them. It is not organically connected to them. It comes in from the outside, owing nothing to them, and replaces them. God does not think that trying to go back to some earlier form of human morality is good enough. And he doesn't think that future reforms based on something other than who he is and what he values will produce a good world. He doesn't think it's possible for a society to reject him and his ways and do anything but get worse over time. And that's what makes this passage really hard to hear. God is taking one of our sacred myths, one of the stories that we tell each other, the belief that the human race is progressing, developing, that as a whole we're becoming better. We're becoming better and better and better. We're becoming better than our ancestors ever could be. God takes this belief and says, it's not true. The nations do not get better on their own. In fact, the longer that the human race marinates in a world that's infected by evil, the longer that the nations reject me and reject obeying me, the longer they reject my kingdom, the worse they get. And no one likes hearing that. The traditionalists do not want to hear that. They want to hear that the past was good enough. And they want to hear that that past can be had again. They want God to give humans some credit for being able to create a society worth living in. Traditionalists don't want to hear this. But progressives don't want to hear it either. They want to hear that humans can plot a new course to utopia that given enough time and enough energy and enough sacrifice, we can create heaven here on earth. They want God to give humans credit for being able to create a society worth living in. Both groups want the same thing, even though they tackle it in different ways. They both want to believe that human beings have it within ourselves to create a good world. And God says, no. What you have is the power of iron. You can break and crush others, but you do not have the power to take the strength you have and use it to build something really, really good, something that blesses all people, something that creates a world that everyone wants to live in. You don't have that power. And again, that should be obvious, right? How have nations used their power? They use it to enrich themselves, to get what they can for themselves. No nation takes the strength that it has and impoverishes, impoverishes itself for the sake of others. No nation takes the best that it has, joyfully sacrifices it, foregoing what it could have in order to raise others up to share their own standard of living or even to surpass their standard. No nation says, here, allow me to yield my place on the international stage so that you, other nation, can have a chance to benefit from being there. No nation does that. That's not how the nations use their power. 
Now, I don't want to take a lot of time on this point, but I'm aware that because this is one of our sacred myths, it's really tempting not to embrace it as much as it is to argue with it. And so I could imagine someone saying, maybe myself saying, I don't know, seems there have been some movements in history that were in better directions, weren't there? And there is a place where it's valid to acknowledge that. And yet, the reason for that is because in those moments, those other nations borrow from God's kingdom. They don't come up with their own ideas. There are times when one nation is better because it builds in values that it takes from God's kingdom. Let's consider very quickly the whole question of justice. Can you value justice as a nation? Would that produce a better kind of kingdom? And of course it would, and of course you can. But where does the idea of justice come from? It comes from the kingdom of God. It does not come from the worldview and the philosophies of this world. You have to borrow it from God's kingdom. Because in order to have a sense of justice, you have to have a sense of right and wrong, of an objective right and wrong. You have to have a sense of needing to treat others fair, fairly. You have to have a sense of obligation to other people, an obligation that you owe to them. You have to have a sense of equality among all people. Now think about those things, right and wrong. Fairness, obligation, equality, those do not come from a universe that just happens to exist, that is here by some blind evolutionary process that has rearranged and organized itself. There's no reason then to believe in those things or to act on them from within the philosophies and the worldviews of this world. Those things come from where they come from God's kingdom. The nation that draws from his kingdom to borrow those will produce a better society than the one that believes only the strong survive. So there are times when one nation will build a better nation because it borrows from God's kingdom. Or there are nations where one of God's representatives influences that nation and sets it on a different trajectory. Or there are times where God brings a revival, when he breathes life into people, who in turn then breathe life into their society. Those are all true. But that's not the same as saying that nations under their own power can improve themselves. That they cannot reject God, create their own values apart from his kingdom. Instead, the opposite is true. Whenever a nation loses its taste for what the kingdom of God is made of, when that nation rejects him, then it will twist and distort whatever it's taken from his kingdom and it starts, restarts that tragic downward spiral again. Now why is that? It's because the drift of the nations is not toward loving God and toward loving what he loves. What's a nation? A nation is a collection of individuals. What do we know about people? We know that our internal drift is not toward God. And if it's not toward him, then it's away from him. And the nation that drifts away from him cannot build a better society than he would. Think about it this way. The nations have rejected God's command to love him above everything else, to put him in that place of first priority so that the whole nation as a whole pursues him, longs to acknowledge him all the time in everything that they do. No nation does that. Instead, Something else takes his place as that thing of first priority in the life of the nation. And to achieve that something else, different nations have different things, but to achieve that something else, whether it's wealth, 
property, power, importance, reputation, entertainment, leisure, whatever that is, to attain that something else, the nation will have to sacrifice some of its people. It'll sacrifice them in war. It'll sacrifice them economically. It'll sacrifice them in the womb. It'll sacrifice them as they age. It will sacrifice their morality or their dignity. It will sacrifice them by not giving them the time that they need. It sacrifices them because the nation is too busy pursuing something else other than God. And that's why Jesus ties these two things together so tightly so that you start to have the sense that you cannot love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot care for them as you care for yourself. You cannot give yourself to making their life as good as your own. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself if you will not love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because instead, what will you do? You will take the iron that you have, and when your neighbor gets in the way of what it is that you want, you'll use the strength that you have to crush your neighbor, not to love them. That's not simply true of individuals. It's true of nations. It's true of nations as they follow other nations. That's the way God sees the world because that's the way the world is. That's point one, God's view of history. And if that's all we have this morning, this is a very bleak morning, very discouraging. So <laughs> let's go on to point two. Why tell us this? There are actually two audiences for this interpretation of history, this revelation from God as to how he views the world. First, there's Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel tells him, verse 30, this mystery has been revealed to me in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king. First audience is Nebuchadnezzar. Now, why does he need to know this? Well, as you keep reading the book of Daniel, you discover the next two chapters the Nebuchadnezzar has an awful lot of pride in himself. He has a lot of pride in what he thinks of himself and of what he thinks of his abilities. This dream challenges that pride. It's part of why God gives it. It's to generate humility in all of us who are tempted in Nebuchadnezzar's direction. It's to those of us who are tempted to think too highly of ourselves, who think that we are responsible for where we are in life who think too much of what we can accomplish as humans by uh, how by our own unaided strength we can straighten out what is wrong with this world. It's to help us realize how much we need God and how much we need his kingdom if we're going to build human communities that benefit people rather than crushing them. It's to urge us toward humility. It's to urge our governments toward humility. It's a character trait that most governments don't have. See, every government believes that it is right, that it's doing the right thing. Every social movement believes that it's right and that it's doing the right thing, and they all believe that if only they had a little more power, they could make everything right. And God directly challenges our pride, that pride, which no one likes to hear, and which the next couple of chapters tell us, Nebuchadnezzar ignored it. He just couldn't help himself in chapter 3. In chapter 4, you find the culmination of this pride. He looks out over his city one day and he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He ignored everything 
that God said about how God sets up kings and removes them. He decided that all of the credit for what he'd done should go to him. And I could imagine somebody saying, but wait, I'm, shouldn't it go to him? I mean, it's probably his programs, his resources, his ideas that built Babylon up, right? I mean, shouldn't he get credit for what he's done? Frankly, I really don't care about Nebuchadnezzar, really talking about myself here. Shouldn't I get credit for what I've done? I'm the one who studied hard at school. I'm the one who worked hard at my job. I'm the one who made good decisions. I'm the one who took responsibility for bad ones and then fixed them. I earned the money that I have. I invested it wisely. That's why I have the house that I have. It's why I have the car and the clothes that I have. It's why I eat where I do. It's why I go on vacation where I go. I am where I am now. I enjoy what I have now because of what I've done to get here. Shouldn't I get credit for that? I'll grant that you did all of that. But let me ask a couple questions. Where did you get the mind that you have that allowed you to do all that? The good mind that let you study. Did you give that to yourself? You realize, of course not. That's purely a gift. You had no responsibility for the mind that you've been given. How about the healthy body that's let you do all that you've done, that has not broken down under the stress? That's also something that you didn't give yourself. You didn't give yourself the genetics that you have. How about the advantages you had growing up, the opportunities to study that others didn't? The school district that had programs that gave you options that kids in other districts didn't have. The teachers who took an interest in you when they didn't have to. Your family that valued learning, that pushed you along at times when you didn't want to. You didn't give yourself any of those advantages. They're all given to you. Just like the conditions of your birth. Let's think, if you had been born 500 years ago, would you have all that you have now? How about you're born in a time where the gifts that you have were not as valued as the gifts that somebody else had. They weren't as needed by that society. Would you still be as successful as you are? Or let's bring it into the present and suppose maybe you're born in the mountains of Tibet. Do you still think that you'd have everything that you do now? That all of your hard work and all of your effort would have resulted in the same way? Human pride only makes sense if you don't ask too many questions. And it only makes sense if you're in a place of power where you can pretend to take credit for what human beings have done. Powerful people tend to think too highly of what humanity can do because they ignore everything that God has given them that lets them be as successful as they are. They don't see how much they and their nation owe to God and how much they need to be part of his kingdom and part of his agenda. That's the first reason that God gives this dream. It's to urge us away from humility if we're given to pride, to warn us away from getting caught up in relying on human power in an attempt to produce heaven here on earth. But there's a second audience as well. And there's a second audience because there is another response that you can have when you see the power that the nations have, and that response is fear. If you're someone who does not have power and you see how the nations misuse their iron power, you're going to be tempted to be scared of them and of what they might do to you. And so, yes, God gives this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. He gives the interpretation to Daniel to give to Nebuchadnezzar. 
But then you and I learn what this dream is about, and we learn its interpretation. How? Because it's ended up in Scripture. God did simply give it to Nebuchadnezzar. He also gave it to you and me. And the reason that it's here is to give us hope, comfort, to help us see that the world is not out of control, even when it starts to drift further and further away from God. This dream tells us that the succession of scary and scarier nations is not under their own direction, but that God himself is leading history to the place where he wants it. It's a place where he will remake it. It tells us that the power of ungodly rulers, ungodly nations, ungodly institutions and organizations will not win out in the end, but God will. That his power will overpower them and that his power will usher in his kingdom. And it's because he will win that you don't need to fear the nations, the organizations, the institutions. Despite their power or their policies, they can't do any real harm to you if you're part of God's kingdom. They may do temporal damage. That's true. They may make your life miserable. They might mock you. They might cancel you. They may take your stuff. They may imprison you. They could even take your life. They could do all of that to the people that you love. They could do all of that to the church. And if all of that happens, it changes nothing. God's kingdom still ends up filling the whole earth and everything that opposes him and everything that opposes his people and everything that opposes you still ends up like dust. Dust that can't even stand up to the wind. Dust that, verse 5, is blown away so that not a trace can be found. God could not be clearer. This is a warning. Do not overtrust the kingdoms of this earth. They cannot and they will not deliver on their promise. But don't overfear them either. Because God in his kingdom can deliver and will deliver on his promise. So point one, God sees human history declining over time. Therefore, point two, you should neither trust nor fear even the crushing nations of your time. But then point three, what does this mean as we live among the nations? If one error is to overtrust human power and try to use it to build earthly utopias, there is another opposite error, and that is to do nothing. There's a very popular uh, belief in some Christian circles of the late 20th century that said, oh, when Jesus returns, he's going to end this world with fire and judgment before building the next. So since it's all going to burn anyway, it doesn't really matter what you do or don't do while you're here on this earth. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. That is a completely non-Christian way of viewing why you're here. What does Daniel do at the end of this chapter? He finishes telling the king that the kingdom of God crushes all the ungodly kingdoms into powder, including Babylon. And then he goes back to doing what he was doing. Serving the king of Babylon. Serving the kingdom of Babylon. Serving one of the dust nations. Only this time he does so with a new promotion. He now has greater responsibility to help rule Babylon than he did before. And he invites other believers to help in doing that ruling with him. 
He embraces what God's given him to do and he provides places for others to embrace what God's given them to do as well. Daniel is not living hands-off in this world. He is all in. Now, why is that? You have to remember here, what's the big picture of what God's doing? Is God's plan for the kingdom of God to destroy humanity? You realize, no. He plans to destroy civilizations that are built on human pride and human fear. But he's going to replace those civilizations with a different civilization, a civilization full of people whose loves have been reordered, who do love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who do love their neighbor as themselves. And Daniel is a forerunner. He's a representative of God's kingdom. Kingdom has not yet arrived in his lifetime, but Daniel brings the values of that kingdom into Babylon with him. How else do you think he did what he did? He was forced to serve the nation that ripped him out of his homeland and separated him from his family. And yet he embraced serving there. You read through chapter 4 and you realize he genuinely cared about the people that he served, the people who were responsible for him being where he was. That is not the kind of power that the nations have. The power to take someone who, in our minds, has every right to be bitter and to transform them into what? Into a giver, into a lover, into somebody who serves willingly. No human philosophy can do that. But that is the kind of life that God's kingdom produces. The willingness to lay your life down for those who have hurt you. Not to pretend that they haven't hurt you. Not to pretend that it wasn't a big deal. But to start to realize that anyone who would do what they've done to you has an even greater need. A need for which there is no power in humanity to heal. But a need that can be healed by the power of God by the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into their life, something that they can now experience through you. And you might say to me, Bill, that's impossible. I can't do that. I can't bring the kingdom of God to people who have hurt me. I can barely stand to think about them. I'm not Daniel. You know what? You don't have to be. Because the kingdom of God did not depend on Daniel bringing it either. The kingdom of God depended on the stone, not on Daniel. The stone cut out by no human hand. You keep reading through scripture and you discover this, is, this stone is a who, not a what. Stone is a person, not a thing. You discover it's Jesus himself. Jesus makes that very clear in Luke chapter 20. He tells a parable there. It's a story about a man who owns a vineyard and he takes this vineyard and he rents it out to others. Only the people that he rents it out to, reject the one who owns the vineyard. They don't want anything to do with him. They treat it like it's their own thing. They think they're just fine on their own. They don't need this man, and they don't believe that they owe him anything for the vineyard that they now have. So when this man sends a servant to collect what belongs to him, the tenants beat the servant up and send him away empty-handed. This man is incredibly gracious, and he sends another servant gives them another chance. They beat that servant up as well. Unaccountably, the man sends a third servant to them. They wound him, throw him out of the vineyard. Still, this man will not give up, and he says to himself, I'm going to send my son. They'll respect my son. They'll treat him differently. And they did treat him differently. They didn't simply hurt him. They killed him. 
because they figured that now the vineyard would belong to them and this man would finally stop bothering them. Now, when Jesus told this parable, people were appalled. They could not imagine anyone doing anything like this. Their world had not yet been steeped in sin as long as the world that you and I live in. You and I could imagine someone thinking those things and doing that. But they couldn't. So they said to Jesus, surely not. And Jesus, Luke tells us, looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? And then he quotes out of Psalm 118. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus just said that there is a stone that human beings and human power reject because it does not line up with what they want. They want nothing to do with the stone. They will reject this one. They will hate him and they will hate him so badly that they'll kill him. And yet that stone that this world hates is the cornerstone. God comes along, he looks at that stone and he says, this is perfect for what I'm building. This is the foundation that everything else will rest on and that everything else will line up with. Now clearly Jesus was talking about himself. He's the stone who would be rejected. He's the son of the vineyard owner who would be killed. But he wouldn't stay dead. He would rise to become the cornerstone of a whole new kingdom that will be so good, it'll last forever. There will be no looking back to a golden age, no looking forward to something better. Both traditionalists and progressives will be completely satisfied. Can you imagine that? They'll both be in that kingdom. Can you imagine that neither one will find any fault with it? That's what Jesus died for. That's what Jesus died to bring you into. It sounds glorious, and then Jesus ends that whole section with a little twist. He's just saw, tied Psalm 118 to himself. Now he's going to tie it to Daniel chapter 2. And he ends by saying to the people who were there, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is working to build a new kingdom that regardless of your background, anyone can enter. Anyone can be part of this kingdom. You can be part of this kingdom regardless of how you've rejected God or how you've trusted in human power and wisdom. You can be part of this new, completely different kingdom with its own set of values and its own set way of life. But you need to beware because there is no other kingdom to be part of. There will be no more kingdoms replacing kingdoms. And so Jesus is not only the one that God builds his kingdom on, he's also the one who crushes all human rejection of God and turns that rejection into powder. Jesus is the stone that came in the time of that fourth kingdom. And he announced while he was on this earth, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's already started. The kingdom is here. And yet you realize that this dream did not finish with Jesus coming that this dream is still ongoing, won't finish until this kingdom has filled the whole earth. And so you and I right now live in two kingdoms. We live in the kingdom of God and we live in one of the kingdoms of this world. You live and work here with his power in you, without pride, without fear, so that you can serve the iron-powered nations that he sends you to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, break your kingdom into our world. Bring it into us individually, Lord. Bring it into our families. 
come and invade the lives of people who don't know you, bring it into our friends' lives, into our workplaces, into our schools, into our neighborhoods. Let us experience the reality of your kingdom being stronger than the nations, offering a better world to the nations. And Lord, use us individually, use us as a church to reach this world. Lord, don't let us be on the outside of that. Lord Jesus, come and do this so that you get the glory and so that the honor and the power and the might of the kingdom is all seen to be yours. In Jesus' name, amen.